a second Bill of Rights under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station or race or creed. All of these rights spell security. And after this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. For unless there is security here at home, there cannot be lasting peace in the world. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. America's chickens! Coming home! Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. You're going to sing the swim, you're going to learn the truth. No matter what you do, you're going to learn the truth. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Passes a three-strike law and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. And good evening, and thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. I'm glad to have you with us. We hope that you continue to be conscious about uh, quarantining and keeping yourself safe. Um, I know that out there for workers especially, um, that it is quite a dilemma to make the decision each day to... Uh, make sacrifice uh, during this pandemic. And for those of you who are listening, and yes, welcome to all of our new listeners and welcome back, family. This is the Black Sanctuary, and we're glad you're here. Uh, I want to remind you, and I want each of you to say it every day and tell your children that it was the janitors, the nurses, it was the grocery store workers. It was the doctors and all of the essential clerical maintenance street workers, the deep down workers in this country who saved our asses. I want you to make sure you repeat that to our children so that they understand that they can never demonize, minimize, or look side-eyed at any worker in America, the EMTs. And uh, if you want a story, 
I'll tell you a grandma story as we come into this program tonight because workers are really on my mind. Because when we talked with Dr. Taylor last week and we were talking about the 1944 Economic Bill of Rights and we were talking about ALEC and we were talking about this corrupt system of global criminals who have taken over the American government. We need to have stories to tell. And tonight uh, we're going to be telling a lot of stories, and they're going to be based in, in, in the history of our crisis because we are in a crisis. But you can tell this grandma story. You tell your children that this is the grandmother who goes to bed every night worried about my grandchild, who's an essential worker, my firstborn grandchild, while she's handling and trying to put dignity to all of the bodies that are piling up in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts as a medical examiner, that I worry, will this be the day? that this will claim my family. That's my story for tonight. But we're glad you're with us, and we hope that you are are staying safe. Um, I do want to make a couple of notes before we come to our guests um, about the DOJ and the Attorney General. Remember a couple of weeks ago I told you, so you would be clear, that we are now living in an, uh, um, uh, an aristocracy. Where government by the people no longer exists. It's government by a criminal enterprise, which is global, which has taken over, and they don't care about you and me. They only care about their future in being wealthy and enriching themselves and being able to make favor to people who can further enrich them and power. We are on the precipice. Without the House of Representatives, we are now on the precipice, precipice of a dictatorship. And it's not like dictatorships. Don't, don't put it in the context of what you know historically as a dictatorship. It is meeting out whenever and however they decide whether or not you can live under the banner of the rights and privileges of a U.S. citizen. That is where we are. And so, you know, a lot of you have been sending me email and saying, you got to let up. I don't have to let up. I'm not going to let up. I've only got about 10 more years to do this. And I've been doing this since 1985. And mission is not accomplished because we continue to buy, the, to eat, to partake in the pablum that is served to us by him and her and them, and we don't know who we are. We talk about, oh, we got to uplift the black community. What black people are you talking about? And you need to ask that question every day. 
And as a black person, you need to ask the question every morning while you're brushing your teeth, washing your face, whatever you do, having your coffee. Who am I? Okay, that's enough of that. Uh, that, So, you know, we've got a corrupt attorney general and all the criminals that assisted, and I'm not going to talk about that because next week I'm going to go into my thing about why I have been riding Donald Trump for two and a half years. But anyway, and I told you that last week, I do want to, in case I forget, to wish all of you a very happy Mother's Day. I know for for some of us, it's not going to be the kind of Mother's Day we'd like. We'd like to share it with our mothers. And for some of us, and I'm especially thinking of our program administrator, Michelle, um, local Michelle Odom, uh, on this Mother's Day, and I want her to know that my heart will have her. I've got you, sister because this is going to be a hard one. I know that it will. So, again, thank you for being with us. And if you want to write it down, our number is 347-838-9852. And tonight we are going to be looking at freedom in the context of black economic equality or inequality, the inequities, and talking with Dr. Toure F. Reed, who is a professor of history and author of Toward Freedom, the Case Against Race Reductionism. Write it down. Reductionism. Reducing the import of something. Like I made the bread last night and forgot to put in the yeast. You understand? (laughs) Okay. Okay. but uh, we're we're going to be talking to him specifically about his book, Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism. And I specifically titled, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking through what we do in this program. I specifically titled this program, Black Economic Inequality, hashtag Race Matters. We have too long been in the, been on the program of allowing race to be blurred in looking at disparities having to do with our socioeconomic crisis that we have been experiencing uh, for a long time, for a very long time. And I like this book, and um, we're gonna, I'm going to talk a little bit more about it, uh, because it puts it in a historical context. Last week, I was really struck by Dr. James Taylor. And you know I don't usually go through programs where I don't have something to say. I don't have any additional questions. And I don't challenge some things that I hear. But last week I let Dr. Taylor rip on this show because he was so right on and he had put all of this, where we are, this, this this is not a moment for us. This is an era for us. He had put it in historical context. And uh, I want to thank our brother and our Common Ground Voice for being the senior executive producer on the show. Uh, what a senior executive producer does is talk to me about some, uh, a, a coupling of a specific subject 
and then he goes out or she goes out and makes some recommendations about who our guests should be and what we should be reading. And then that executive producer comes and spends, and in the case of Pascal Robert, has spent hours with me as we read this book together, talking about why this, this book that Dr. Reed has written is so important. Now, it's heavy, but I want you... You you can get it. I got it at Kindle like within 20 minutes because I wanted to read it right away. But there are a number of places, and I've posted the Verso uh, Books link, versobooks.com link in our chat room. And the title of the book is Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism. And our guest, earned his B.A. degree in American Studies from Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts. If you get through four years of Hampshire College, which is very rigid, um, and you can stay in Amherst, Massachusetts for four years, that you should get points for that altogether. He got his um, he received his Ph.D. in History from Columbia University in New York City. He's a fourth-generation American educator and third-generation professor. I would like to add he is the son of one of my mentors as I matured in my race consciousness uh, over the years. He's a son of Adolf Reed. And for those of you who have done the kind of reading that you need to read, you know who he is. And I have even been shy about inviting him on on this program. He spent his formative years, Dr. Toure Reed, in southwest Atlanta, Georgia, and New Haven. His research interests center on race, class, and inequality. And the impact of race and class ideologies on African-American civil rights policies, civil rights politics, and U.S. policy. Uh, his articles have, been, have appeared in all the right article, uh, all the right publications for, for academicians and historians, American Ethnic History, Labor Catalyst, Black Agenda Report, who are friends of ours, Common Dreams, who are friends of ours, Jacobin, who are friends of ours, the New Republic and the nation. We used to be friends with the nation. I don't know what happened to that. But it is my pleasure, and I am really excited to talk about this book. Write it down. Economic, Black Economic Inequality. And the title of the book is Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism. And it is my pleasure to introduce to you and have this discussion with Dr. Toure F. Reed. Dr. Reed, thank you so much for joining us at Our Common Ground. Oh, thank you so much, Janice, for having me. It was a wonderful introduction. I don't deserve all the high praise, but I, but clearly you've been to Amherst. I know that. <laughs> I, I, I lived in Massachusetts, taught in Massachusetts, worked in Massachusetts, 
for over 40 years, and I went oh, wow. to school in Massachusetts. Um, I left my native West Palm Beach, Florida, and ended up at Wellesley, Massachusetts, <laughs> and then Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> so um, uh, I, I have been. I was a debater, uh, and I know how isolating Hampshire College is. I, I can appreciate Wait. that. Uh, yeah. I didn't realize there was a Wellesley connection. My mom had uh, um, done her master's in art history at Wellesley, or at least it had begun a master's in art history in Wellesley, wow. if I remember, at Wellesley, if I remember correctly, anyway. Uh-huh. I'm just beginning to appreciate the idea of being a Wellesley girl. I mean, at the time I was a Wellesley student, which I went there in 1966, um, is um, also the time that I joined the Black Panther Party. But anyway. <laughs> so, um, so were you the one Wellesley student? <laughs> no, actually not. I was not. Um, we all started working. Um, there were like four of us, and we all started working the breakfast program. Because oh. that made sense yeah. in the context sure. of where we were. Uh, and I came from a race family, so um, my my mother had already told me where to go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do want to th- uh, let you know that one of the things that was so striking for me, this was a very difficult book for me to read, um, and I'll tell you why. Um, because I lived through most of the history that you described. I was born when in 1950. So for every era and every part of the history of inequality and trying to turn the world right up upside down and write up and write it, I was there. So uh, every at every point, I was sitting and trying to think. What were my parents saying? What were my parents doing? What was I doing? Um, um, How did that fit into the Jim Crow uh, segregation that I spent all of my life, my young life in? And how did it, and, and, and what were the people around me doing in response to this? That was the thing that kept pulling me away from the book. What was my father doing? What was my mother doing? Uh, you know, what was my uncle doing? Uh, was that really about the group of black men that used to, uh, businessmen and lawyers that, and doctors that used to meet at my house every month? Is that what they were doing? <laughs> so, uh, and, and, and then the m- most interesting part was I kept thinking, um, did, did I read that in, um, we used to have this publication that we got every Monday. It's a, it was a news, it was essentially a news journal for kids in, called My Weekly Reader. And it okay. had U- U.S. News. Do you remember that? Yeah. No, I, I was in uh, grade school in Atlanta in the 70s and, and 80s. 
And um, okay. I remember that. Yeah, I mean, I think there, if, yeah. if it wasn't yeah. called that, it was something like that. So, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and 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 then when you started charting some of this, I remember the conversations at our breakfast table. Uh, my parents were Republicans. And Which meant John something F. different Kennedy, back then. Yes, yes, th- at that time. Um, and 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 they were discussing di- supporting John F. Kennedy, mm. um, and you know, and the Weekly Reader was a Republican publication, I think, because there was more stuff about Richard Nixon <laughs> and Eisenhower in it, and. Dropping bombs on Germany. I, that's why. I, I mean, I was a real serious reader of that thing. <laughs> so, so thank you so very much for this work. And one of the things I want to do in talking with you tonight is to ignite um, our audience in understanding that putting these problems in a historical context tends to um, minimize the sting. Um, we're in an age of runaway inequality. Somebody had to pronounce and announce that black lives matter. And I think black people are coming to con- some consensus that no matter what they do, this society has failed to re- redress racial disparities. And your book helps us to put that into, you know, to kind of like soothe that we are not guilty. We, mm. it's nothing that we can do that will upright this. So, yes. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. The title of your book is Toward Freedom, the Case Against Race Reductionism. How do you define race reductionism? What are its social and political origins, and how does it manifest in our contemporary society? Okay. Now, I want to, if it's okay with you, um, can I try to answer that question? Everything's okay with me. Well. I'm going to try to answer that question with giving a little background on why I wrote the book in the first place. And I think you've you've touched upon it already, right? I mean, that there are, mm-hmm. I would say, some misconceptions about uh-huh. and popular misconceptions about the origin of um, contemporary disparities, or, or maybe even more to the point, the limitations of post-war liberalism. So I actually didn't have any plan of writing the book. Uh, before late 2015 or, or maybe even early 2016. I'd, the book is, is, is essentially the book-length treatment of an article that I'd written for Jacobin in uh, late 2015, I think August of 2015, that was a response to what was then and I think still is a commonplace mischaracterization of Bernie Sanders as a as a class reductionist. So I'm going to play with class reductionism on my way mm-hmm. to race reductionism, if you'll indulge me. So, so since I mentioned I'm going to play with race, with class reductionism, I should just say what that refers to. If if some of the listeners aren't clear on it, uh, that class reductionism is an alleged view 
that race, gender, uh, and other in inequities are either secondary to or reducible to economic inequality. Some, back in 2015 all the way to uh, 2020, had described Sanders' calls for redistributive universal economic programs as just the latest iteration of an allegedly decades-long tendency among liberals to reduce racial inequality to class inequality. And, and I think maybe the most visible such individual, at least back in the first Sanders campaign, was probably Ta-Nehisi Coates, though Hillary Clinton also was, was ironically guilty of that. But Coates uh, had described Sanders' platform, if I recall correctly, and I'm sure I do because I quote him in the book, as uh, the same a rising tide lifts all boats thinking that basically ensured that the war on poverty in the 1960s would fail to close the disparities divide between blacks and whites. And to be honest, I found that mischaracterization, right, which, again, is still with us, the Coates line, uh, really chilling because it was basically a declaration of up is down. Um, I mean, look, there's no doubt that the war on poverty let's say, failed to close the racial wage wealth gap. Uh, policies, impo important policies, like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Civil Rights Act of 1968, which respectively opened employment opportunities and home ownership to blacks, definitely mitigated inequality, but they obviously failed to eliminate it because we're still stuck with the disparities. But the thing is that the Johnson administration and subsequent liberals had failed to eliminate black poverty partly because not only did the Johnson administration do exactly what someone like Coates said it should have done to treat black poverty as if it's its own thing, but because the war on poverty attributed black poverty to race and racism rather than issues like deindustrialization or automation. And as a, re as a result, it rejected efforts to redress black poverty centered on universal redistributive programs in the vein of what Senator Sanders was calling for. Uh, in fact, I should just say this because this needs to be said as many times as possible, a rising tide lifts all boats, which, again, many people, like Coates, had described as, as Sanders' platform. That phrase, a rising tide lifts all boats, was actually a rejection of a Sanders-like program that, the, that civil rights leaders like Bayard Rustin or, or A. Philip Randolph had been calling for, right? So, what does this have to do with, um, you know, what race reductionism is? Um, here's the point. Race reductionism refers to a tendency to treat racial disparities as if they exist in a world apart from the political and economic processes that, that generate them. Uh, and that is often enough owed to a related tendency to treat race as if it's actually a biological or quasi-biological category. Uh, so that's, in, this, in a nutshell, what race reductionism refers to, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, my reflection in reading uh, in, in your book um, is that, you know, from my experience uh, and looking back, um, is that many times, in addition to, as we begin to minimize, I'll give you an example of public public policy during the Great um, Society, or 
what they called the Great Society under Lyndon Bain Johnson, there was an executive order 11246 that specifically pointed to race, but instead black leadership because I don't know why, because we were afraid, because we were ashamed. I don't know. I, I, I think it was some kind of... Uh, trauma thing going on about dismissing race and we claimed uh, the um, uh, uh, for instance Title 7 but we wouldn't claim uh, Executive Order 11246 because it said black people (laughs) you know and and so that's the thing that, that really uh, struck me. Another term that you use in the book, which I just absolutely love, and I've been saying it a lot to people that I've been talking to about your book, is that what you garnered from, uh, and I know Bernie Sanders very well. I've worked with Bernie Sanders for over 25 years. Um, and you talk about this public-oriented domestic agenda versus what some of us call democratic socialism. Hmm. Talk about that. Yeah, um, obviously, well, I'll, I'll put it this way. I, as disappointed as I was by the outcome of the 2016 Democratic primaries uh, and and ditto for for 2020, but we'll we'll stick with 2016. Yeah, yeah. I walked away from 2016 feeling pretty optimistic about things. Um, not not the Trump presidency, not that part. But what I was really impressed by or or encouraged by was the fact that so many Democratic voters and even some Republican voters uh, had were moved by Sanders' call for a return to public good uh, model of governance. Uh, and that public good model of governance in the U.S., which is about as close to social democracy as, as we've gotten, you know, was the dominant model during it, was ushered in, I should say, by the New Deal, right? And it mm-hmm. wasn't social democracy insofar as the New Deal certainly didn't call for nationalizing, um, you know, corporations, right? But it did set out to create a sustainable model of capitalism that um, for all intent and purpose sinked, attempted to sink anyway, democracy with capitalism. I mean, there's a default as a, as a Gen Xer, I guess that makes me some kind of, that would make me some kind of Reagan baby if my parents had different politics, but I had a little insulation against, or maybe a lot of insulation against that, right? That and (laughs) I don't know, from my vantage point, it's, it's kind of hard to be, uh, to have been a black kid who would have liked Reagan. They existed. Uh, and I guess they still do, but um, but that helped too. But you know, um, the for for people who are basically shaped by the Reagan and post Reagan era, most of us would have no understanding of the fact that much of what Sanders was calling for actually was sort of commonsensical or mainstream, um, you know, liberal politics in the 30s and 40s and wasn't outside of the mainstream or or at least wasn't terribly far removed 
from the mainstream. I think in some instances really wasn't outside of the mainstream in the in the fifties and sixties among people who identified as liberals, right? And even even some people who were not just northern liberal Democrats, but also even even a stratum of, of Republicans of the Rockefeller uh persuasion understood that the proper function of of government was essentially to steward the economy and societal relations for the good of the public. Again, it's not socialism uh, per se, uh, but but it is a lot closer to socialism than what one would get in the neoliberal in the neoliberal era, right? And for people who were again shaped by Reagan Reaganism, neoliberalism, right? And the, and Clinton and Obama are part of the neoliberal consensus. Um, you know, it seems exotic and un-American to expect the government uh, to, let's say, I don't know, provide health care as a citizenship, right? <laughs> right. But, mm-hmm. but um, or for that matter, to guarantee employment at a living wage, uh, and again, as a citizenship, right? But for all intent and purpose, you know, that was part of FDR's second Bill of Rights, uh, and there certainly was in the immediate post-war era legislation uh, that that attempted to achieve those things for Americans. And and I'll say even public higher education, uh, at least the tuition at public universities used to be free. Uh, I mean, yeah, many they, public yeah. universities were chartered to be to be free, and even in the '60s, um, you know, public higher education when it wasn't free, the tuition when the tuition wasn't free, it was incredibly cheap. I mean, I, I tell my students regularly since, you know, I'm sort of equidistant, if you know Illinois, I'm, I'm sort of equidistant between Peoria and Champaign-Urbana. I'm also basically equidistant between Chicago and, and St. Louis. But since University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign isn't that far from us, I often point out to my students that tuition at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign back when my parents were, were in college in the late 60s, uh, was about $170 a year. I want to say 1966, 1968, I believe it was $170 a year for just tuition, which I think when you adjust for inflation is maybe $1,300 a year. So, um, you know, what Sanders was calling for, again, was a return to uh, for all intent and purpose, at least you know, whatever his actual politics are. The platform that that he put forth was more of a return to how things used to be with respect to Americans, black and white, understanding of the function of government in the economy, and that function in government for the economy was for the good of the citizens, not just not just the corporations, but the people needed to get something out of that too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that that strikes me, and you're the expert here, and uh, correct me if I'm going in the wrong direction, but one of the things that strikes me about the failure of the Bernie Sanders uh, mm-hmm. candidacies, both of them, uh, the 2020 and the 2016, is that neoliberalism really has a lock on the electorate. And I don't understand, and and my position is that Sanders was coming with a new uh, New Deal liberalism that black people didn't trust. Am I right on that, or what are your thoughts about it? 
Well, I mean, I think that is at minimum in the parking lot of the ballpark of what was probably going on. And I think you might be looking to have Willie Leggett on your show at some point. Um, or, I will be, um, yes. Uh-huh. Okay, and and he's the true expert on this. But where I would say that's in the parking lot of the, the ballpark is before we got to the election or the primaries, uh, Sanders, so in 2017, I think, Sanders, you know, had the highest approval rating of any Democrat among black people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that was true 2017, 2018. Um but I have to look up the exact year. I might be wrong about that. And she was very popular and uh, with blacks, and many young black voters in particular were moved by his platform. But obviously older black voters weren't. And I don't know that it's so much that, they, that, that neoliberalism has a, a lock on the contents of black voters um, so much, or, or the, and certainly I wouldn't say that it has a lock on the imagination of the general electorate. And in fact, I would even make the case that both the Sanders insurgency and the Trump insurgency, uh, you know, revealed that within both parties, there was mass disillusionment with now, and I don't think most people would frame it this way, but there was mass disillusionment with the promise of neoliberalism. Um, mm-hmm. But, but what I would say is that with many black voters, uh, one of the things that was going on was the DNC predictably running a case, uh, making a case that somehow or another Sanders was less electable than Biden <laughs> or, or Klobuchar. <laughs> I, um, yeah, uh-huh. and, you know, or Mayor Pete uh, Buttigieg, right? I mean, you pick a centrist. Somehow or another, no matter what skeletons they had in, in their closets or what, um, you know, how far out of their depth with respect to resume they actually would have been, like mayor, mayor of South Bend, Indiana, you pick a centrist, and for the DNC's standpoint, that centrist was going to be more electable than mm-hmm. someone who, you know, rejected Clintonism, right? Mm-hmm. And between that... Uh, and the kind of brokerage politics, which Willie Leggett would would speak about, you know, with much greater facility and depth than, than I, but the kind of brokerage politics that we could see James Clyburn was adept at. Um, mm-hmm. I think those things help to explain, uh, you know, and and some of the failings of the Sanders campaign too, right? I mean, some moves that mm-hmm. that I think the Sanders campaign had made yeah. uh, in. South Carolina, maybe specifically, um, that all of those things, you know, had a had a problematic effect. I, I would add one other thing, though, uh, and and maybe years from now I'll regret saying this, but not. I won't regret the content. I just might reject the, the re- regret the reaction. I think that that San, one of the ways that Sanders undermined himself was a kind of capitulation to a notion. To, well, to, to brokerage politics on some level, but it, but an embrace of the idea that what he should be seeking is the quote-unquote black vote. Black people vote Democratic, no question about it, generally speaking. Um, more than 85% of us, right? I mean, in the Obama years, it's more than, than 90% of us. But but we vote Democratic for overlapping but but 
overlapping reasons, but that obscure some profound differences in our perspectives on the world. And I think, you know, upscale, many upscale black Americans vote Democratic because they understand that state intervention by way of affirmative action or minority set-asides, which I think was the the um, executive order in the Johnson years that you were referencing. Yeah. Um, but 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 affirmative action, um, you know, fair housing legislation, minority set-asides, all of which are uh, anti-discrimination policies that benefit professional, managerial, class, blacks, which includes myself and my parents, disproportionately, that those policies, again, are state action. Poor black Americans have some connection to those policies, whether or not they benefit from them as 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 well um, or as much as as you know college educated blacks is, is a different matter, but they have some connection to those issues or attachment to those issues, and that's good. Mm-hmm. But also have um, you know investment in other welfare state policies that are of, of less mm-hmm. um, you know interest to upscale blacks, and. Mm-hmm. Even as we're all attached to the Democratic Party because we understand statist intervention is is relevant, some of us are evangelicals and don't like gay people, right? Um, some of us, you know, want minority side minority set asides, but don't like poor black people, right? So, so there are real significant fissures there. Um, I mean, I, I'll say this, and I don't want to say too much because I don't want to out myself for my own personal contradictions or make any of my, my friends from years past feel bad or put them on front street, as we used to say. But I had a number of arguments in the, you know, 96, in 1996, with black middle-class friends of mine who were Democrats, right? And I didn't vote for Bill Clinton in 92 or 96. I sat out those elections because, I, you know, my line was, and I stand by it, if I wanted to be a Republican, I would be a Republican. Uh, and since I was not a Republican, I wasn't going to vote for Republican light. That was Bill mm-hmm. Bill Clinton. But mm-hmm. I have a number of friends, black friends, uh, who who are professional managerial class types, right? Uh, have advanced degrees, uh, and maybe we're in the Jack and Jill set, who um, not only voted for Bill Clinton, but when I suggested that they call, I had a, a Leon Panetta's phone number somehow. And uh, in 96, I had, with Leon Panetta's phone number, was looking to call Leon Panetta to voice my outrage over the Welfare Reform Act. And I had shared this number with a number of my middle-class black friends. And a number of them who, again, were invested in affirmative action uh, wholeheartedly, Uh said that those those poor black people needed to work harder. Um, They thought welfare reform was appropriate. (laughs) Uh, because uh-huh. poor blacks were lazy. Uh, Do you really think you're the only person that knew a whole bunch of those people? <laughs> oh, I definitely don't think I'm the only person. I, I think I, I know, I know and am related working. to some people. <laughs> yeah, I know I know people who were working in government jobs whose job it was to figure out solutions for those people, and they opposed it. But anyway, mm-hmm. I don't want to get you off the. You, 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 you do. You but, the, do but my point in, is in, that we have different politics, right? Even if we vote Democrat, we're not all uh-huh. aligned on the same issues. And so my my overarching point was that Sanders' agenda 
was going to be much more beneficial and even disproportionately beneficial to working class and poor black Americans. It's going to be disproportionately mm-hmm. beneficial to working class and poor black Americans because blacks are overrepresented among the poor and the working class. It was going to be more beneficial to working class and poor black Americans than it was going to be to white collar professional managerial class blacks. And it didn't make a lot of sense for him in that context, in that reality, to seek the black vote per se because not all black people have the same attachment to the Democratic Party, which means that we don't all have the same, even if we vote Democrat, we don't all have the same politics. It made a, a lot more sense for him, to, I think, to stick to his guns rather than to do some of the pandering that, that I think didn't serve him well, um, mm-hmm. not even with a lot of black mm-hmm. voters. It would. It, it struck me that uh, perhaps Bernie Sanders should have read your book before he uh, <laughs> uh, needed to read this book before his um, his campaign. Early on in the book, you discuss how black leaders going back from the Depression era, era, uh, even up to the Civil Rights Movement, uh, posed solutions. For Black America in political economy and the class and and the class makeup of Black workers, mm. can you give us an example of the difference between rooting solutions for Black America in political economy as opposed to rooting such solutions in race reductionism? I could go a lot of different ways with this. Um, <laughs> one one though that I if you'll indulge, um I wanna amplify the point about blacks in the New Deal era and New Deal in World War Two mm-hmm. and, and the tendency to uh view racial inequities through a kind of class lens, right? I mean the New Deal had a had a kind of transformative impact on not just American politics writ large, but black American politics, right? Civil rights groups uh, many mainstream civil rights groups like the NAACP and the National Urban League, um, but maybe just as significantly, the the no longer in existence hasn't been since the late 1940s. The National Negro Congress um, mm-hmm. tended to frame discourse on inequality uh, in the co- of racial inequality within the context of capitalist exploitation, right? And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, you know, the New Deal certainly is a part of it. There were, of course, uh, you know, there was an active black labor contingent uh, that we get out of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which pushed a lot of these leaders as well. But one of the reasons I would say that many blacks in the New Deal era looked at economic, um, racial inequality through the lens of economic exploitation is that, or among the reasons, is that in addition to the fact that the New Deal had encouraged workers, whatever their race, uh, to basically, in, in, as part of an agenda to establish a sustainable model of capitalism, New Deal is going to extend rights to working people, right? Rights to protest economic injustice. Another thing that's going to motivate blacks uh, to think about, you know, racial uh, inequality through the lens of class exploitation is the majority of black people in the in the Depression decade and, and World War II working class and, and of course, poor. Now, 
blacks are still overrepresented among the poor and working class. So it's important to keep in mind uh, that I think people who lived through the Depression era also understood that they had political ally in the form of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which was an imperfect ally, to be sure. But since blacks were only 10% of the overall population, there was no way black people were going to win anything without some white allies. And so they got they had that going for them. But more to the point, black people in the 30s and, and 40s could see before their eyes the relationship between economic exploitation and racial discrimination, right? Because it was legal, obviously. So this is before, you know, not just not just the Civil Rights Act of 1964. This is before the Fair Employment Practices Committee, right, and Executive Order 8802. Um, you could it was legal for employers to not just discriminate on the basis of race or ethnicity but they could since it was legal they could post different wages right um shaped by and job descriptions shaped by race and when black people sometimes worked in the same jobs as whites uh they were paid a different wage so you could see that the employers used race as a way uh, race and racism is a way to depress wages. And what you have in this context for those reasons that I touched upon, oh, and one more, since that was, since the Depression, uh, the New Deal sort of coincides with the rise of Nazi Germany, you know, I, I think people who were alive in that era also understood the problem with what I would call race reductionism, the problem of treating race as if it's actually a real biological category rather than a social construct intended to justify the exploitation of non-whites uh, broadly defined permanently. You know, people who were alive in the era of eugenics and saw its rise could appreciate, again, the intimate relationship between racial ideology and economic exploitation, sharecroppers maybe in particular. Mm -hmm. So we got in this era, in the 30s and 40s, you have black activists demanding not just anti-discrimination policies like the Fair Employment Practices Committee or Executive Order 8802, which Roosevelt will uh, promulgate in uh, on June 25th, the day Michael Jackson dies, but 1941. Um, but they called for not just Fair Employment Practices Committee, um, you know, fair, you know, an end to racial discrimination in uh, certain lines of work. But they call for things like a full employment economy, national health care, um, living wage policies, et cetera, right? Um, when the Cold War comes around, that's going to have a chilling effect. And what will happen is by the 50s or so, we'll get a retreat, if not late 40s, we'll get a retreat from the class orientation of, of black civil rights and more of a focus on culture. Um, and we're going to get okay. constructs like ethnic pluralism and culture of poverty, which often enough are sort of two sides of the same coin. Culture of poverty is eventually going to be underclass ideology, which is, which was dominant uh, in the 80s and, and even maybe more so in the 1990s and the, in the Clinton years. Um, mm -hmm. But before we get to, to Clinton, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. In the book, you, you do discuss how uh, ethnic pluralism mm -hmm. Um, and and understanding that very how it's very disadvantageous uh, to um, uh, base policy for African Americans yeah. and and poor people and a, and a, and and a way explain some more. Uh, I okay. want you to 
to really explain some more about what you mean by ethnic pluralism and how it has been, and I agree with your premise in the book, that mm. it has been an inhibitor to, to black progress. So have you, you've, you've watched original Star Trek, right? <laughs> yeah, I swear I to God, this is this is a real question related How to did you know? ethnic pluralism. I swear. So I, I'm a Trekkie, so I'm no judgment for me. So, uh, pretty much every iteration for anyone who's watched Star Trek, pretty much every iteration of Star Trek proceeds from an ethnic pluralist framework. But it's it's most transparent in the original series. Ethnic pluralism is a construct that goes back, I think, to the 19 teens. Um, and but it gains a lot of traction in the post-war era. It becomes popular in the post-war mm-hmm. and mainstream in the post-war era, following World War. So, because of the, in part, because of the defeat of Nazi Germany. With the defeat of Nazi Germany, um, and and this process begins even during World War II, liberals uh, begin to reassess. And people have to remember that at this time there was a great expansion of the white American middle class. Mm-hmm. But in, in the post-war era, yes. And yeah. so so in World War II and in the immediate aftermath even more so, liberals began to essentially reject eugenics, the idea that race is a biological category. Um, and that's a good thing, right? So they reject race as a biological category. And instead, what you'll get is that while they formally reject biological race as the engine of civilization, many of them coalesce around ethnicity. And ethnicity is distinct from race officially because race is supposed to be biological, but ethnicity is cultural. Uh, So ethnicity really comes down to a group, a group shared cultural norms that are the product of a common experience. Um, so ethnicity, being a cultural construct, is much more fluid and dynamic, at least in principle. But the thing that's that's kind of crazy about ethnic pluralism, and this actually you can see in Star Trek, is that while it <laughs> officially rejects race as a biological category, it doesn't really jettison race practically because the way that ethnic pluralists, let's say like Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and this is going to get us to, your, to the other way I was going to go, with the question about what um, a race reductionist anti-poverty agenda mm-hmm. would look like versus and a And you do a, a wonderful a examination of the Mon- Monaghan report in this book. Thank you. Um, but, but for someone like Moynihan, the way that Moynihan or Oscar Hanlon, who I discussed before him, talk about culture is actually a lot more like race because what they mean by culture is they presume that there's something intrinsic to these ethnic groups that will always remain. And so an Irish, well, we'll keep it Star Trek, a Scotsman will always be a Scotsman, Scotty, right? Mm-hmm, and so the, mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. Star Trek set the 23rd century or something like that, uh, so the, the, the Scottish engineer still is identifiable, identifiable as a Scotsman, right? Not just his accent, but, but his alcoholism, ultimately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you, we've got the Russian is always the Russian, right? Yahura, I mean, she speaks Swahili. Um, I don't know where she's supposed to be from officially, but I always just assume Detroit. But anyway, there's nothing that seems <laughs> terribly African about her. And yet, 
in a pinch, she can speak Swahili on a dime, right? And yeah. and so they explore these, and, and I'll add, the aliens are treated as proxies for race, even though they're a different, different species. But in Star Trek, you can see an expression of ethnic pluralism. So a Scotsman will always be a Scotsman. He can, can be part of the broader society, but there's still going to be something that distinguishes him from, from others, just as the, that would be the case in the Irish or fill-in-the-blank. So ethnic pluralists officially reject race as a biological category, but and they see culture as being important. But even the way, as as a you know engine of group progress, but even the way that they think about culture is actually a lot more like race than than what culture in an anthropological sense is. And so what happens to get to the the broader question is that when we get to the war on poverty, and this is something I alluded to at at, at the start. The war on poverty fails in part because it sees race and racism as the source of black poverty rather than deindustrialization or automation, right? And where that matters is that while it's great that it identified racism as one of the contributors, because it was, when I said that, that, that the Johnson administration believed that race was a factor, what I'm really saying is that they saw culture of poverty in an ethnic pluralist kind of way as one of the principal impediments to blacks' progress, right? It was white people's racism uh, and black people's, poor black people's cultural deficiencies. And so as a result, you get a war on poverty that doesn't address the, the structural sources of inequality, which came down to, as people like a, I'm almost done, like A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin pointed to at the March on Washington, that um, even as racism was a factor, automation and urban deindustrialization were meant were, were impacting blacks disproportionately from agriculture to the factory system because blacks were overrepresented among low-skilled workers, and the avenues for upward mobility that white ethnics had used, and this is your point about the massive expansion of the white middle class, the avenues for upward mobility that white ethnics had, had followed from the tenements to the suburbs were narrowing by the 1960s because of automation and deindustrialization. So simply passing anti-discrimination policies weren't going to work or Job Corps wasn't going to work, right, training people, you know, for non-existent jobs <laughs> wasn't going mm -hmm. to work. What was needed was something like what A. Philip Randolph and Byron Rustin had called for, the freedom budget for all. And the freedom budget for all, so the war on poverty is an example, ironically, of a, of a failed race reductionist kind of uh, anti-poverty agenda. By contrast, you know, Randolph and Rustin's freedom budget, uh, which is sort of modeled on the Full Employment Act of 19, or sorry, Full Employment Bill of 1945, was a project that connected black inequality, um, you know, racial disparities, to structural mm -hmm. economic transformation yeah. of the, the nation's transition from manufacturing to white-collar service and high-tech. Um, and that looked somewhat like Sanders' platform. But there, were, there was another era, um, uh, Dr. Reed, in all of that, and that was the emergence of the high-tech electronics industry that – uh, most researchers really haven't looked at a lot, and it had to do uh, being on the border of this expansion of white middle class uh, America into this in 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 the suburban areas 
where major employers were moving yeah. to the suburbs and building huge um, touch um, industries where people could easily be trained uh, to do the work of putting together computers and motherboards and um, and, and 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 lots of um, um, job, um, lots of places where there were uh, large, uh, growing hires, and they were putting in the suburbs, and it happened all over the country. It happened in Massachusetts. It happened um, in Illinois. It happened in California and Seattle, the Seattle area, and and what we ended up with, and this was in the um, 70s and, 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 and late 80s, we ended up with other problems that precluded uh, black people from jobs. And it was yeah. called transportation. Yeah, and, and it was, you can add zoning, was, too. Yeah, it was, it was, it was uh, transportation. All the jobs were in the suburbs. Right. And then when um and then it became an issue of housing discrimination where right. communities where these huge companies like Raytheon and um um uh, Hewlett Packard and Honeywell were located Gillette, I mean not Gillette, G E um people couldn't get to them because there was no public transportation yeah. going that way. And then black people who did get those jobs uh, were terminated in tremendous numbers because they were coming to work late, they couldn't get it, they, mm -hmm. they didn't have a car. I mean, because they were in the lower-paying jobs. I mean, and that was happening in the 70s and 80s. And then around the night, I mean, these people had a plan. And... <laughs> And this plan has start, it's really started uh, around 1945. And then when gentrification came along and the new kinds of growing industries, pharmaceuticals, uh, small, smaller companies and not large industrial companies, and they were moving into the cities, and the cities began... Uh, black people in the cities began to suffer from the impact of gentrification, and housing became another issue. I mean, so I'm not understanding, and, and you can help me out here, and we're going to take a break because when we come back, I really want to get a better understanding from what what you propose, what what you pro, uh, your premise about, uh, particularly um, you explain in the book in that in the 80s and 90s there was a bipartisan consensus that caused both Democrats and Republicans to stand behind the problem that Black Americans faced in underclass ideology. <clears throat> And that's mm -hmm. something that you've talked about, and this culture of poverty. And I want you to share with us the nature of those arguments from black leadership. Mm. <laughs> okay. Because you do a real good job. We're going to take a break. For those of you who are just joining us, we are t tonight talking with Dr. Ture 
Reed. He's professor of history at the University of Illinois, author of Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism, the NISM, the, the book that we're specifically talking about. But he's also the author of Not Alms, But Opportunity, the Urban League, and the Politics of Racial Uplift, 1910 to 1950, as I always admonish. History matters. Everything happens in the context of history, and we're so glad to have him with us. We're going to talk more about the, um, uh, in the second hour, about the Obama years and era <laughs> and um, his argument about um, the culture of poverty and uh, the 2016 election a little bit more. You know, one of the things that we need to go back, we need to connect the dots, and I hope that all of us, all of you who are with us, will uh, pick up this book, Black uh, Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism, and we're so glad to have the author, Dr. Toure Reed, with us tonight. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more. Down in the hole. Down in the hole. You've got to help me keep the devil. Down in the hole. Among these are the right to a useful and remunerative job, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation, the right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return which will give him and his family a decent living, the right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom Freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad. The right of every family to a decent home. The right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. The right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment. The right to a good education. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time.
I'm Tony Braxton, and I encourage you to learn the signs of autism at AutismSpeaks.org. Piano, where's that honey? Where's my God and where's my money? Unreal values, a crass distortion. Unwed mothers need abortion. Kind of brings to my old young king touch. He did it now. Trying to make it real compared to what. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Now back to Janice. And we thank you so much for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. For those of you who will celebrate Mother's Day with your mother or with your daughter or with a loved one who is a mother or has been mothering you or someone deserving of being called mom, we wish you a great day tomorrow and we hope that you will stay safe. Uh, and um, that means that you've got to do the social distancing. That means that you've got to be aware that the people who saved our ass, they're the janitors, the nurses, the doctors, the grocery store workers, the people who are picking up the trash. They're the workers. They're who's saving us. Not nobody from the White House. Not nobody from the what other other kind of house, the the White House. Let's just say the White House. Nobody from the White House. Um, we have a criminal enterprise going on in our government, and it is very important for us to understand how we got here, where we are, and how we fix it. And uh, at some point, we have to know what our play plan is. We have to know what our end game is. And we have to know the price that we are going to pay. And that's why we have our common ground. We've been doing this since 1985. Uh, And I'm, 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 I'm meeting a new consensus, finally. People are beginning to understand how to connect the dots. Dr. Ture Reed, thank you so very much uh, for being with us tonight. Uh, I am so pleased uh, that uh, Pascal Robert has brought us together. Um, you know, and people will remember, those of you who have been with us for a long time, that in 2015 we talked with Dr. Lester knocking the hustle and uh, against the neoliberal uh, turn 
tune. I can't remember the exact name of the book, but neoliberal tune in black politics. And here we are again. We are still talking about this, and I hope that we can begin. One of the things that I like to say is that we transform truth to power one broadcast at a time. So if you can begin to have these discussions with your friends who's not going to read the book and say, I read this book and you need to know this man and and when you meet him, you will meet his father, Adolf Reed, um, and then you will, will, will begin to connect some of these dots and stop listening to the nonsense that we think that we can keep. You know, it goes back to the thing I've been saying for years, and my daughter told me to stop saying it because I've been saying it too long. But you keep doing what you're doing. You keep getting what you're getting. And the very fact that we, in our playbook, rejected an agenda that was, a domestic agenda that was oriented to the public as opposed to a domestic agenda that was um, focused on him and her and them and on us. Dr. Reed, I do go off a little bit. but <laughs> I enjoy it. I do, you do, I do it well. Want to, thank you. I do want you to give my best wishes and regards to your father, who I first met in um, at the Peace and Freedom Party convention in, I think it was 1982 or 81 or something like that, oh, wow. out in San Jose. Um, um, you can, um, uh, Ron Daniels and and um, Dr. Gerald uh, Horn um, mm-hmm. uh, and I were on a panel with your father, and I just shut up and listened because <laughs> I know when I'm out of my league. <laughs> and but, you said that was around uh, 81? About 81 or 82, yeah. Okay. It was it was about that time. Um, but in... Your early discussion in the book, um, and I, I do want to talk in extensively about, uh, see, I think sometimes people thought Barack Obama was Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, it, it, it's like, he never said anything like Bernie Sanders. What What are y'all talking mm-hmm. about? Um and and we and, and and we tend to do a superficial look at the people who literally have our lives at their decision making and it really is disturbing to me that people could think oh Barack Obama says the same thing as Bernie Sanders I mean, where did y'all get that from? But Mm. I I do (laughs) explain, uh, uh, share with us um, particularly how we got caught up with, you know, like this Clyburn thing in South Carolina Mm. with um, 
Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and the kind of uh, brokerage politics that went on in that state, if you all really knew the truth, really knew the truth, you would never speak to Clyburn ever again. Because I don't understand it. This is 2020 that we're talking about here. It's not where we had five people who had entree. We had lots of people who have entree. And how Clyburn has been able to, on behalf of the Democratic establishment, the DNC, and, uh, I mean, y'all voted for Bill Clinton, who was governor <laughs> of Arkansas. We've got to stop doing those things. He, I mean, that was my response to him. I'm not voting for anybody who was the governor of Arkansas. <laughs> now, i got to tell you, know, you, though, my both my grandfathers are from Arkansas, so I can't have you hate on Arkansas I, so much. I, no, but he was the white governor of Arkansas. That was my point. <laughs> it's like my Save. parents sent me six necklaces when I was in school. And they all had a gold peanut on the end of it. I was just beyond myself in outrage that my parents were so into Jimmy Carter. Now I feel bad about it. But, <laughs> but then I'm saying, what, what, why are you all campaigning for the governor of Georgia? Do you know where Georgia is? <laughs> you know what they do in Georgia? But anyway... And especially that governor. I mean, and you could say especially that governor with with Bill Clinton too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, don't. don't uh, I mean, um, I was a, an appointee of Bill Clinton. Clinton. I was a mm. fellow. And um, and I think it was like I had lost my mind or something. But um, that, that's a whole other story. Uh, uh, other people can tell you that story, but tell us how we how we got a whole bunch of black people who are who were trying to keep up, who thought that Barack Obama, who is my brother, and I love him dearly, just like I love my wayward sister. Uh, <laughs> My, oh, y'all don't wait a minute. My sister's not wayward, but she's kind of strange. Um, and um, how we were convinced that somehow Barack Obama was not a neoliberal. He didn't advance the ideology of neoliberalism, and he wasn't a capitalist, and he wasn't a centrist, and we fell for whatever the DNC was selling. Yeah. Even after he had one whole term. Right. Yeah, I I mean I uh I think what the the one of the genius things about Barack Obama, who is a very skilled politician and a brilliant orator, um, and is a really charming has a very charming and inviting persona, right? I mean he's a he's a wonderful salesman and frankly, maybe this is the race man to me. Uh, on a personal level, in some ways, I prefer him to Bill Bill Clinton, right? I mean, I I voted for Obama twice, but I knew I was voting for Mocha Bill Clinton. 
So I had no delusions about what I was doing. Um, Sarah Palin scared the hell out of me. <laughs> and, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. you know, I, I'm no fan of, of Mitt Romney. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think I, I, part I agree all about all of that about Barack Obama. I I I think that since I have to choose the least of the devils, I choose mm-hmm. him. Yeah, yeah, and I would have certainly voted for him a third time, uh, not mm-hmm. not happily uh, uh-huh. against Trump had that been an option. But of course, I also think that the failures of the Obama presidency have a lot to do with why we have Trump. Because in keeping with your point, I mean, and, you know, his his brilliance as an order, Obama's brilliance as an order, is that he, and Trump has this talent, even if it's the crass 1980s, early 90s shot comic version of it, like Andrew Dice Clay, that Obama pitched his, 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 his spiels at a level of abstraction that allowed listeners to project onto what he was saying. I mean, you you could walk away thinking that he was a progressive because he mentioned FHA housing discrimination. But look past the next 20-something paragraphs in the speech where he tells black people they need to pull up the pants and stop eating Popeyes for breakfast, which I have to tell you, I've eaten Popeyes for breakfast many times, mainly because it's delicious. Um, and I never spent any time slinging on a corner. Uh, I never knocked over a liquor store, and I've never had any baby mama drama. So all I have to say is that Barack Obama's contempt for eating Popeyes for breakfast was in many ways quite misplaced, but also constituted pandering to uh, underclass-informed racist stereotypes that was on a level with Booker T. Washington, Right. I mean, and in Mm -hmm. fact, Mm -hmm. just to amplify your point, in 2008, um, you know, I'd written a piece in Black Agenda Report uh, that was a critique of Obama. It was published just before his um, acceptance of the his formal acceptance of the nomination, which coincided with the anniversary of the March on Washington. Right. But I was so dismayed by the love, the 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 biracial um, or transracial love for Obama, because I, what my tagline was to many people, um, uh, two different ones, but one of them to, in response to many black folk who I knew were really excited about Obama, was, am I the only one who knows or works with disingenuous white liberals to appreciate how problematic an Obama candidacy is going to be, right? Mm-hmm. And I knew I wasn't the only black person who knew or worked with disingenuous white liberals. But what I was referring to there was that so many of the white liberals who I knew, white white Democrats who I knew, were animated by Obama precisely because of his post-racial foolishness. And specifically, it was the underclass piece, right? Because he positioned himself by way of a not dishonest uh, personal narrative but it was a personal narrative that was often pitched in an abstract way as the exemplar, as, as sort of a black uh, underclass in, in informed um, Horatio Alger 
story, right? And so many whites I knew liked Obama because uh, both because he he as a black man who was raised by a single mother, uh, he knew the struggles of black people, uh, but but managed to overcome his his um, you know experimentation with drugs or his questioning the value of education, um, the absence of a male of, of, of his father from his life, blah, 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 and ascend through the Ivies and through the, you know, uh, Illinois legislature and, of course, the Senate and to, to the White House, despite this cultural baggage, which, of course, we can look past the fact that Barack Obama was a very privileged black man. Uh, his, his parents were very well educated. His grandparents were well educated and, and nicely employed, not just gainfully employed, but but nicely employed. Um, none of that mattered. But what was interesting about it is that so many middle class black folk I knew were also captivated by Obama for the underclass reason, right? I mean, insofar as he personified. Um, you know, what could be done if you played the game. And because he was a black man who played the game Mm -hmm. and he Mm -hmm. succeeded. And it was really a fascinating moment. And in fact, one, one other thing I want to want to say about that, um, just keeping it 2008 for a second, I'd gone to a number of public events, um, including some black history events where I had listened to speakers 2008, 2009, 2010, basically give formal lectures, right? And these are public figures, right? I won't name names, but celebrities uh, to one degree or another that follow the arc of the Obama spiel. And what would happen is that these public, at these public events, these celebrities would begin a lecture for black history or whatever with some factoid to establish their bona fides as an expert on black people. And it was always like a Wikipedia level factoid, right? Uh, And then from there, they would say if it was 2008, I love me some Barack Obama. We got to support Barack Obama. Barack Obama is going to be good for black people, blah, blah, blah. And that was necessary because the next thing that, that came out of their mouth was that if you believe it, you can achieve it. So stop eating Popeye's for breakfast, pull your pants up, (laughs) turn the TV off. And you will succeed. And there was, in, on some level, it was validating that narrative, uh, and, and it maybe perhaps ironically was validating for a stratum, a professional managerial, um, you know, black uh, people. And I think it was validating for a stratum of, in that moment anyway, working class and even some poor black people because uh-huh. if you mm-hmm. bought the 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 basically bogus narrative that Obama was up from the underclass then if you believe it you could achieve it um so and then at the same time of course he had these sort of flashes in his speeches uh that that could allow one to think that he was doing that he was going to do something sort of sanders like yeah the 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 damage the the the, the danger for us as as a collective people is to look at the glitter mm-hmm. and not at the substance and that has always been very problematic uh in in our community and, i mean the first time i heard about barack obama was when he was challenging uh bobby rush 
Uh, and I got real confused and called Bobby Rush's office to talk with him about what the hell is happening uh, in Illinois. Who is this man? And um, and had a lot of conversations about who is he and for to whom does he owe allegiance and that I saw nothing in his background, including him being a community organizer, where he owed any allegiance. And, and Harold Washington's era, um, he wasn't showing any allegiance to the movement that Harold Ro- Washington had established in Chicago, and that was very concerning to me. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do think your book, is real helpful and would be of assistance to people who tend to look at the um, the, the campaign rather than to look at the candidate or or the substance of the platform. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's what, that, that's what I mean. Yeah. Well, the I know. Can, what I, I mean, Obama's campaign was like. You could be dancing in the street every day. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, and and again, I mean, he's a brilliant politician in that regard. As a legislator, um, not so much, or at least a president who gets legislation through, right? Um, he's no but, LBJ but really, for better or for worse. It's or really he interesting. LBJ. It's really interesting uh, over history where. Um, the majority electorate or the people, the white people, they uh, tend to go for uh, candidates like Reagan and Bush and the Bushes and Bill Clinton, and who are talk who are calling for change and uh, being conservative and and that whole nine. Yeah, and then they get in office and they don't do anything. They don't change a thing. They don't change well, nothing. And I want to amplify a point. And the Democrats point. get in mm-hmm. and get slaughtered, like uh, people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Ayanna Presley and Alhan Omar. They just get slaughtered because they are calling for change. Yeah. No, and I, I want to amplify something you said, um, too, that – you know there were um there were elements of the pitch of obama uh the fact that as you said that some people were hearing bernie sanders basically uh when he ran for president in 08 that were really cause for alarm for me if 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 only because i knew some white people who had voted for obama who understood obama to be something like what Sanders actually was, right? Because 2008, which I think maybe the coronavirus can can help recharge some people's memories about this, but 2008 was pretty bleak. I'm I'm quite convinced that one of the two reasons that a black man named Barack Hussein Obama was able to pull that off to beat the war hero John McCain, um, war hero in quotes. But I but I'm quite convinced the two reasons that he was able to do so were one Sarah Palin. And two, Sarah Palin resonated with people, right? The fact that she was at that stage of her political career at minimum, clearly not ready for that office. Um, okay. That 
really jumped out to people in the context of the housing market, stock market crash, right? And so I knew white people who were Republicans, it seemed, who had who indicated that they had some interest in Obama, but what they were interested in was something on the spectrum, interestingly enough, of what you would get from a Sanders candidacy. And so one of the things that I was, and, I'll, and I'm going to amplify that point because I know it sounds paradoxical, but one of the smartest things that I ever did uh, from an intellectual standpoint, ironically, and, and hopefully your head won't explode when I say this, was that for a couple of years I listened to Rush Limbaugh. Now, the reason I listened to Rush Limbaugh was to be a spy. Uh, and oh, I listened to Rush Limbaugh for years. Yeah, and it wasn't my original <laughs> plan, but it was very yeah. useful uh-huh. for me because I could appreciate wh- how it is he connected with his audience, and he uh-huh. empathizes with his audience, right? And he, he empathizes with the very people that Hillary Clinton wrote off as the basket of deplorables. Uh, who have real issues that merit consideration, um, the real serious issues uh, about concerns about declining living standards and the like, whether or not they'll be able to, you know, have a job a year or two from now, or whatever, uh, and thus pay the mortgage, car note, send their kids to college, whatever, right? And um, you know that reality humanized. You know, listening to Limbaugh helped me think about the problematic ways that liberals talk about broke people. I mean, it doesn't really make a difference what their race is, but, but work, broken working class people, even though now it's fashionable to hate on the white ones, they were talking all kinds of smack about us, uh, or at least broke black and, and Hispanic people during the Clinton years, and I would say up through the odds, no question about that. Um, and so that reality and talking to people who I knew were Republicans who seemed as if they were going to vote for a guy named Barack Hussein Obama uh, to to help stem the bleeding of, uh, of of the economy made clear to me that if Obama didn't deliver, if he proved to be Black Bill Clinton, as I was very certain he would be, that what we would get is something like a Trump presidency either in 2012 or 2016, um, mm-hmm. because it's not simply that these people are programmed to be racists. Um, a lot of people uh, who were racist voted for Obama, just like a lot of people who were racist voted for Hillary Clinton, um, as well as, as Trump, right? But it's not that they're programmed to be racist, uh, per se. All of us you know, learn these behaviors and these attitudes, right? There's no gene for that. But the fact of the matter is they cast – you know, a blind eye on that one, at least that one time or the second go around, expecting some dividends. And if they didn't get the dividends, then they were going to be pissed. And if mm-hmm. if they were racist, um, but again decided, eh, he looks kind of like my grandson, so how bad could he be? Uh, so I'll vote for this guy, and yeah. he's clearly, yeah. you know, more competent than Sarah Palin. Then the failure to deliver would only amplify those the you know the the, the animus right uh, particularly in the context of celebrating Obama as a first um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so well it's certainly uh, that era that um, era the Obama era certainly spoke to the ways in which we fail um, to elicit 
accountability um, from um, mm-hmm. the party that we vote for and associate with, which I have always been an independent um, voter. Um, but when um, things come to pass, that's what we do. You know, in the last chapter of your book, you discuss how black media personalities and politicians use race reductionism, um, reductionist argument in an attempt to paint the proposals of Bernie Sanders in a way that seemed insensitive to the issues of black America. And I think that this discussion really does highlight that. Explain what you believed motivated um, these celebrities. I don't. I don't know. I watch a movie, and the next day I can't tell you who was in the movie. <laughs> I can tell you about the characters, but I, I can't tell you the names of the people who was in the movies. I do know Denzel Washington, so y'all can give me a point for that. Uh, and I know that other lady, uh, I can't think of her name. Uh, <laughs> explain what you believe motivated uh, these celebrities um, and people who had presence uh, and 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 why they were you 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 really your premise is that they were wrongheaded. Talk about that for a minute. Yeah, well, part of it, and I guess since I mentioned a couple people by name and in the conclusion, then I lose nothing by saying their names now. So Joanne Reed was was one of the people I'd mentioned, and uh-huh. I referenced a an appearance that Joy Ann Reed had had on The Daily Show in the aftermath of 2016. And she said something to the effect that um, what black people want when it comes to race is a reckoning. And she also said something to the effect that black people weren't interested in an agenda that basically offered working people, whatever their race, working class and, and the working poor and the unemployed, offered them stability, again, no matter what their race, which she cast essentially as a deflection from this project of a reckoning. Well, look, I mean, I at least for the time being, I have a job. Um, I have a relatively cushy job uh, in the grand scheme of things. I'm tenured, and um, you know, I don't have to go into the office five days a week, but I do have to work all the time, but I get to work on my own schedule. And that makes it, no matter how many hours I I clock in at the job, that makes it a relatively cushy job, especially considering the one year of my 20s that I wasn't in school. I worked as a permanent temporary employee and had no insurance or benefits and barely made more than a minimum wage. So I have a cushy job, and I will concede that in a a decent paying job. Joanne Reed has an even better job. than I do. Yeah. <laughs> Much better to make more money than I do, a lot more I would imagine. Um and has better You're a stuff. professor and she's a confessor. Great. <laughs> there you go. And and I'm a professor at a public university, so that that lowers my pay even by by professor standards. But 
Look, what's, so she's got health insurance, right? Um, she's already paid for college, and, and uh, I think she's a lawyer. I don't remember. But she's already paid for No, for she's Harvard. not. She was a journalist. Oh, she's not? She, yeah. Ah, no, no, just she a doesn't have a... Yeah. yeah. So, so, but she's already paid for her tuition at Harvard. Uh, and so, and what does she care if Americans have, you know, a right to a job paid at a living wage because she's doing all right. So I think much of what's going on there is that, and this gets to the point that I mentioned from, you know, a while back, that even though when I mentioned that Sanders did himself a disservice by courting something called the black vote, which obliterates the fact that while we vote Democrat, generally speaking, our attachments to the party aren't the same, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Much of the problem is just that, right? There's nothing for her to benefit from there. And in fact, since Sanders also called for raising taxes on people, presumably in her tax bracket, there was actually something to lose. And for all intent and purpose then, she would have been, or and many people in, in that tax bracket who are POCs, because um, we don't need to limit it to, to just black people on this one, uh, would have been allergic to such a project because it was at odds with their class sensibilities, mm-hmm. which we often it, forget when it, it comes to black contradicted, people. <laughs> but it also contradicted a, a very fundamental kind of mindset, and that is that I am special and none of this that we are talking about in 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 relationship to race matters um, affects me. So mm-hmm. I'm speaking about some other people because I'm special. <laughs> yes, clearly. <laughs> you know, um, right. I, you know. I mean, I I I'm I'm a former adjunct professor at a couple of universities. And I saw that in my graduate business students a lot. I'm special, so the, whatever you're talking about, about race discrimination and disparities in, in industry and, and race, racial discrimination in, in employment, that doesn't have anything to do with me because my white people like me because they know that I'm special. Um, <laughs> Which is kind of mind blowing, in the sense. Because um, we're all special until we're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we're all employed until we're not, and we're mm-hmm. all not a victim of race disparity until we're not, and that mm-hmm. that includes y'all. This COVID nineteen. Do uh, you don't have any health disparity? You haven't faced any health disparities because your doctor really likes you and blah blah blah. Um, so yeah, I, I think that fundamentally, a lot of that comes from that, and the other is not to be able to admit I'm black. And that means something in this country that is not altogether good, because I'm special. Well, now, do you think... I I know how to navigate the system. Right, right. But I I wonder if black as special in that last way, that I know how to navigate the system, is exactly what's going on 
in 2016. I think that was going on 2000, some version of that anyway, 2008 through 12, and yeah. mm-hmm. and maybe even mm-hmm. through the Clinton years. But in 2016 mm-hmm. forward, I might submit that that language, that kind of race reductionist language, which presumes that all black people have the same interest, is really crucial to establishing the bona fides of anyone who understand, who wants to present him or herself as the voice of black people. And again, I, I shouldn't I shouldn't exaggerate the significance of it in 2016 to 2020 because that's not new, right? I mean, that's what Booker T. Washington had done. That's what Barack Obama was doing on some level. But in the context of the Sanders campaign, some of those those class cleavages that have long been there in black America, always in the post-emancipation era to one degree or another, those class cleavages became all the more pronounced because it was really, I think, quite evident that we weren't all getting the same rewards um, from, you know, Clinton-style capital D democracy. And um, what the Democrats did I mean, Hillary Clinton did it in ways that were just shameless, uh, was they used these kind of pat race reductionist, as I call them, frameworks to obscure the fact that the Democrats, unfortunately, were complicit in the policies that really screwed over black people. I mean, Bill Clinton, right, was responsible for the Omnibus Crime Act. Bill Clinton was responsible for welfare reform. He was responsible for, for Hope Six. Um, which essentially fast-tracked the destruction of, of public housing. Yeah, Bill gov- Clinton even ran. Right, <laughs> Bill Clinton, though, even ran on a on a pledge. And this, I'll I'll be honest, um, this was one of the reasons I couldn't vote for him in '92. It wasn't the only one. Ricky Ray Rector was a was a big one, but um, Bill Clinton even ran on a pledge to mend but not end affirmative action. And while that doesn't sound that bad. Um, because he's saying he wants to keep it. it was, that was a capitulation. Affirmative action wasn't a, wasn't and has never been a quota system, certainly not legally. Um, and so, what? He, but he capitulated to the right on that front by accepting mm-hmm. their narrative about affirmative action being again a, a set of, of quotas, which it never was. Uh, and and that I I felt at the time and still feel quite strongly about it. In fact, I will take feel and believe out of the mix and say, I know, actually pose a threat to such policies. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the the fact of the matter is that the Dems have been complicit for the last 25 years or more, but we'll, we'll stick with, well, 30 years just about at this point, right? Because Clinton was elected in 92. Yeah. I'm getting old. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so the Dems have been complicit for nearly 30 years minimum in a set of policies that just have not served blacks well at all. And to mask that, we get Hillary Clinton writing off mass incarceration, her complicity in it, right, since she was was helping Bill make the case for uh, the Omnibus Crime Act with her super predators bit. You got Hillary Clinton masking her own complicity and her husband's complicity in these draconian police state policies by using a langu- language of implicit bias and structural racism, right? And describing yeah, and- racism as something that's a genetic affliction, which is something a Nazi would be fine with. 
and 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 the impact for her campaign was that she was really unable to rid herself of Bill Clinton's destructive legislative baggage. Yeah. Um yeah, um, we only have a little time left, and one of the things that I do want to discuss with you is the rise of Joe Biden as a Democratic candidate with um, uh, Donald Trump in the White House. Do you do you think that there will ever be a political opportunity for Black America to establish? its policy needs in the political agenda again? Um, well, I mean, I guess it depends on what we mean by, by black America. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm confident. I've been asking that question for four straight weeks. Who are we talking about? <laughs> Who are the black people? I, I'm confident that middle-class black people, let's say if Joe Biden wins, um, mm-hmm. I'm not confident that Joe Biden will win, but I'm I'm confident that if Joe Biden were to win, that middle class black people might fare well, and would certainly fare better under Joe Biden than uh, mm-hmm. Donald Trump, or at least uh, unless something changes with, with Trump. Mm-hmm. But but I don't know that poor, given what kind of Democrat that Joe Biden is, I don't know that poor working class black people. Will do very well. Will fare well um, yeah, with him. Yeah. yeah. But, so, but it brings and, me to the next question, and you can fold this into your continuing response. Sure. Is if you think that race reductionism could ever be the future of black politics? Well, I think. Unfortunately, race reduction is reductionism is the present of black politics. So, mm-hmm, what I would mm-hmm. like but can to it do be the is future? not a not a good one. I mean, I think it's a fine project for again well-educated, um, gainfully employed white co- black white collar professionals. But I think I think it's only a fine project even for us because you know I'm I'm part of that group. Not indefinitely, um, because mm-hmm. if we do the math on this, um, the wages of the bottom 60 or 70 or possibly even 80, uh, but certainly 60 percent of American workers have been either stagnant or on a de- on a 40-year decline. And many of us black, white-collar professionals, just like many of our white counterparts, find ourselves wondering if we're going to have a job. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and not mm-hmm. just because of the novel coronavirus. That that only amplifies problems that were already baked into the system, um, you know, baked into where we are now in a world in which, in a neoliberal consensus that, that denies working people job security. Um, yeah. You know, it's, if you own the company, that's one thing. You might even get a bailout. Uh, but if you are an employee, Anywhere up and down the the hierarchy, right? I mean, uh, to to one degree or another, uh, I think you face more and more precarity. My mom, you know, was, a, was one of those black women who was a beneficiary of the expansion of affirmative action uh, in the early 70s to women, and was 
eventually, I think she started off at Coca-Cola as a secretary. And, you know, obviously college educated, as a graduate of Xavier University in New Orleans, HBCU, and um, went to Wellesley, did, uh, started a graduate degree at Wellesley, so nicely credentialed, and went from secretary uh, to management to um, executive at Coca-Cola mm-hmm. in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I remember my mom telling me in my, my late teens that um, I probably shouldn't have said what company, but I remember my mom <laughs> telling me uh, in in uh, the late 80s or, or maybe even it was the 90s that she had feared for her own job security. And she was you know very successful. She retired very young um, and um, has her own business and all that stuff at, at, at this point. Um, but nevertheless, she was, she was, you know, in the upper echelon, uh, of, mm-hmm. of Coca-Cola. And since she saw where the sa- she saw how the sausage was made, since she worked in HR, she was, you know, apprehensive about her own future, um, which is why she yeah. eventually, yeah. you know, left. Um, so, you know, it's not like things have gotten better since the, the nine, you know, mid-90s or late-90s, whenever my mom retired uh, or mm-hmm. left Coke. So, Well, it, it just seems to me that one of the things that we've got to do, got to go back to, is we've got to start having black civics academies. We've got to stop talking about having luncheons and start mm-hmm. having forums and having um, and teaching, uh, I mean, I I taught, I mean, my first job really had to do with my, not that I had, was a recent graduate of the Sloan School, Um, it had to do with my interest in uh, anti-apartheid activities in the United States, and I was hired by a progressive company by the founder and CEO of Polaroid Corporation, because the president had heard me at a meeting and put me and hired me to be on a project about um, uh, about examining the company's role in South Africa, mm-hmm. which led to being the first company that um, um, moved itself out of the country in protest of mm. uh, uh, apartheid. So, um, and and your mother and I have a great deal <laughs> in, in common because I simply left after 20-some years uh, corporate executive uh, career because I just couldn't do it anymore because um, no matter what they said, what they did was different from yeah. what they said um, the, the goal was. Dr. Reed, I've really enjoyed our conversation tonight, and I hope you'll come back. Um, one of the things that I said to uh, Pascal Robert, the producer of this episode of Our Common Ground, was that maybe we need to put together a panel of mm. people like you, Lester Spence, and uh, others, because we've got to stop. Um, talking about this in the context of analysis and start looking at a game plan uh, for our communities. And that means we've got to 
not only worry about what's happening at the White House, but we've got to start worrying about what's happening at the State House. I have recently moved to Florida uh, after retirement, and one of the things that I'm finding is that there isn't a great deal of organizing, educating, agitating. And in that kind of environment, people are able, and there is a great deal of race reductionism, mm-hmm. uh, even in the organizations that are supposed to be advocates. Um, and there's no uh, academy for which they are sending um, candidates through. Um, I mean, I look with great pride at a person like Representative Ayanna Presley, who I have known since she was an undergraduate student. And there were there was infrastructure in place to help her begin to formulate her political ambitions and her political standing, uh, her agenda, her platform. And and I'm so proud to see her just moving right through it without apology. And we've got to do a lot more of that, knocking on doors to get black people who go to work, the janitors, the nurses, who are saving our asses, y'all. Um, <laughs> I, keep, I keep thinking that everybody needs to understand that these are the people who have built, the bridges for us to say, to to come across safely, and it's not just about COVID. It's about when when I was in corporate America, I wanted to know who the janitors were, who the secretaries were, who the clerks were, because that was where I was going to find my power. Hmm. And 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 we don't have enough of that. But I really uh, am so grateful. Folks, the name of the book, and you should buy it, and it's not, a, it's not one of those table, coffee table books. You've got to read it. <laughs> Toward Freedom, <laughs> The Case Against Race Reductionism. You all know how you all buy these books and put on the coffee table, put on the bookshelf, so that when people come to your house, they'll say, oh, my goodness, this person is really, really well-informed. Hell, you got to read the book. And um, I, I, I very rarely buy Kindle versions of books because I like to have a book in my hand. I like to spill stuff on it and have wine glass rings all over it um, and write in it. But... Uh, Kendall now has this thing where you can write notes and and bookmark and all that stuff, and you can get this book at Amazon and Verso, who is the publisher. And Dr. Reed, I hope you you uh, will always use your academic skills um, to lift us to a place. So thank you very much, and for all of you who have been with us tonight. Thank you very much, and we will see you next week. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you.
Thank you for joining us on Our Common Ground tonight. Join us each Saturday night, 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you.